Welcome to Week in Horror. You gotta be fucking kidding. The only podcast that will feed your horror need. The need to feed. With JL. Yeah, I'm a fucking masochist. I'll watch that shit. <laughs> Eugene. Somebody has to be the sex symbol, I'm sorry. <laughs> Alex. Shit, I just demonetize this forever. And Johnny O. How do you like that shit? Got half within a monologue. <laughs> Before unmuting myself, golly, it's one of those fucking days. <laughs> With industry guests. Hi, this is Richard Oakes, director of host. Hey, this is Adam Leader, director of host. This is Matthew Mark Hunter. I'm Donna Nelly. And you're listening to Week in Horror. And you're listening to Week in Horror. And this is Week in Horror. And you're listening to Week in Horror. Welcome to prime time, bitch! News, trivia, and more. One by one, we will take you. Join our live show Wednesdays at 7 central, youtube.com slash weekinhorror, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Week in Horror. Stay scared. (laughs) Well, (laughs) so... I apologize, Alex. We're going to edit this out um, for the audio, but Alex was supposed to have the intro on this one, um, and he was here, and then he was gone. These are the connectivity issues that I was that I was telling you about in the live chat before we got started. Um, so, and he was here when we were playing the intro, and then he disappeared. So, um, we got to get the show started. So, I apologize for the delay, but. <clears throat> I can handle this. Welcome, welcome, horror fans. It is Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time, and that means it's time for another episode of the Week in Horror Podcast, the only podcast whose official motto is Klaatu Verada Nichu. <laughs> and if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast host, you can join us here on YouTube for our live show so you too can get in on all the bloody fun. What are you waiting for? Join us. This week, we are covering select horror films released June 19th through June 25th. Thank you all so much for joining us. Um, I'm not Alex. I'm JL. And with me tonight are Eugene. And Alex will be along shortly. (laughs) What's up, everybody? (laughs) So, um, yes, uh, hopefully Alex will be here momentarily. But that's okay because apparently I need a Ricola. Did I sound bad in that? Oh, no, the coughing. It was the coughing is what it was. Oh, great. Now I'm losing Eugene. No! No! <laughs> Everyone's... I mean, it's just another solo show. <laughs> yeah, it looks like... Did you lose your camera? Yeah, it just, it just like... I haven't even touched anything. It's like, your camera looks unplugged. Uh-oh. It, so I'm going to pl- unplug and plug it. I'm still here, though. <laughs> as he walks away. <laughs> As as he as he drives, I'm still here. <laughs> well, welcome, 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 everybody. Uh, how's everybody doing this evening? Let's say hi. Well, while we while uh, Eugene is fixing his camera and Alex tries to figure out what's going on on his side, let's see who is in the chat. Let's say hi to everybody. Oh, and by the way, we got to get this up and get this going. Bam! 
There, down at the bottom of the screen, is all of our amazing patrons who help us to make this show possible. We love every single one of you. So, let's see who all's in the chat. Travis Brown is in the house. Good to see you, Travis Brown, one of our amazing patrons. Thank you so much, Travis Brown. Hey, Tony Regime, thank you so much for being here as well. We do appreciate it. And I see who else is here. Who else is here? Um, they were coming in, coming in. Oh, well, to they were having a nice conversation. Oh, look, look at that. I am by myself. So, <laughs> I guess I'll handle it so far. Uh, let me see who we got here. So we got here. Raven Darkstar is in the house. Says, hey, hi, and hello all. Good to see you, Raven Darkstar. Thank you so much for being here. Sarcasm was well. Good to see you, Sarcasm. Thank you so much for being here. We do appreciate it. Apparently, yeah, yeah, Sarcasm, one of our amazing patrons. Uh, we do appreciate the support, bud. Thank you very much. Ivy Gentry's in the house. Says, hello. Good to see you, Ivy Gentry. Thank you so much for being here. There's Eugene. He's back. Hey. <laughs> oh, it's all over the place. It's one um, of these shows. It's going to be one of those. Yep. And then, of course, I see... Yeah, that was me. Surf is in the house. Good to see you, Surf. Nope. Irish Demon is not here. Irish. De I, I was doing a live stream. I was on a live stream with Irish Demon uh, before I came on here. And he, he was having fun with the kick powers. He kept booting me out of it just to prove his authority and, you know... He was just having fun with me. It was, it, but it was a great live stream. It was a lot of fun. Um, Skids crashes in the house. Good to see you. Says lies. You just think we smell funny. No, I promise it was a connectivity issue. I really, really do. And we're trying to, you know, trying to make sure that the integrity of the show, you know, is 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 maintained. So we do appreciate it. Uh, you being out here, Skids Crasher. Don Warner's in the house. Good to see you, Don. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. We do appreciate it. And of course. Um, I don't actually, and Travis Brown says no spoilers at Raven Darkstar. Uh, what did Raven say? Oh, don't tell me, I can't watch it. Um, doing good, been watching, oh, episodes of Obi-Wan. I have not been watching Obi-Wan myself. I don't, I didn't plan to. Um, this whole, like, Kathleen Kennedy run Star Wars Extended Universe stuff, I'm not huge on it. So, you know, I was good with Mandalorian, Mandalorian Season 2. Uh, I think it jumped the shark a little bit by bringing in Luke Skywalker, but that's just me. But, um... You know, as far as the further stuff, I'm pretty much done with it. Yeah, I really don't have a need for Disney Plus in my house. I've already got Amazon. I've got Hulu. I've got Netflix. I've got HBO Max. I've got, uh, what else do I have? My 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 wife, you know, uses Pluto. Uh, there's so many streaming services. Because I don't need Disney Plus. I really don't. <laughs> well, okay. The only, uh, this, this is no spoiler. I've only seen the first two episodes. The only thing that got me in was you and McGregor. Because if you look at the prequels, there's a lot of bad acting. In the prequels, there's a lot of bad acting from Academy Award winners, right? But he was the best character out of all of it, and so I was like, I will at least watch you and McGregor as Obi. -Wan. Oh, okay, I will say this: I did dig. I did see a scene that popped up online. I, had, I haven't actually watched it, but I saw a scene pop up where apparently there were some people that were helping Obi Wan. They don't know who he is, but they're helping him, like being neighborly. And then he finds out that they're that they're Empire supporters. And it's like that moment where you're like, oh, like, oh, crap. Uh, so I found that it was like one of those moments. I got like, like if you found out like your neighbor was like a white supremacist or something. It was just, and I found that 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 how they played that in the Star Wars uh, universe, I thought it was really, really well done. So I, I heard that there were good. There's been good moments like that, but I don't really plan on watching it myself. So, you know, but don't spoil for people who are interested in it. Yeah. Yeah. No spoilers. Right. 
All right, so let's see. I saw Surface here. Angel Rivera's in the house. Good to see Angel Rivera. Thank you so much for being here. I do appreciate it. And of course, Diagnosis Horror, one of our amazing patrons, our, our, our actual, our newest uh, patron. Thank you so much. Says you can get Hulu and Disney Plus for a bundle like 14 bucks. Yeah, but you know, Disney Plus, I just would never use it. I've seen the Marvel films so many times, I've got them memorized. So I don't need to see them anymore. I watched WandaVision, which I was cool with. I watched Falcon and Winter Soldier. That was okay. But I just, I personally, I'm not really, after Endgame, I was kind of marveled out. And pushing it beyond this with Moon Knight and WandaVision and Falcon Winter Soldier and Hawkeye and all the other stuff and Miss, now Miss Marvel. It just, it's just, it's, I'm, I'm kind of marveled out. We got the conclusion of the story from Iron Man to Endgame. It took 11 years to get there. I'm good. I'm 11 years of my life. I was dedicated to Marvel, and I'm because I, I still love the comics. Still a fan. Still a Spider-Man fan. I so, you know I love No Way Home, but it's just uh I'm I'm just I'm out. I'm Disney yeah. out. I, I need a break. Not, there's not a you have that you have that like so talk about the end game where it's building up to that final conclusion, and right. you're like okay, you're getting closer, you're getting closer, you're getting closer because you're anticipating the ending, and then it's like you get there. And then it's like it keeps going. You're like, okay, now I don't know when this ends. It's like when you watch, it's like someone's showing you a YouTube video and you're trying to be entertained and you click on it to know like, well, how much time is left on it? And it's like still five minutes. And you're like, sure. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I caught everybody that's in the chat. So I appreciate everybody um, hanging out. And yes, Marvel is part of my lifeblood. I'll always be a Marvel fan over a DC fan. Um, that's just me. I, you know, I love Marvel. Marvel, I can identify with Marvel more than I can with DC. It's always been the way it is. Um, I just, I love it. I actually had a dude run away from me. Run away. I was going to do a, a live stream debate, uh, with somebody Marvel versus DC. And he actually ran away from that because he knows he can't win. It's Marvel all the way. So Aaron Reese is joining us. Says, I'm here. You can all relax. Good to see you, Aaron. It's always good to have one of our, uh, one of our crew members hanging out in the chat. All right. So... Hey, well, Alex is. Oh, there he is. Let's see if he's. Let's see if he's doing good. <laughs> you in? Even your even your streamyard broadcast doesn't want me here. It booted me out right when you kicked it up. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Alex hey. is in the house. <laughs> the original lineup. Listen, it would not be it would not be an original lineup if I didn't have fucking technical difficulties. <laughs> <laughs> This is true. This is true. This is this is like this this is this is nostalgia is what this is. You know, from we're talking well, we kick I we cannot tell you. And it's it's always cool to have the the original three here. Me out me, Eugene, and Alex. The guys who I initially called when I said, Hey, I've got this idea. Let's do this. Let let's 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 do a podcast where we sit around and talk about horror movies. What do you think? And no, 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 that's not even how it goes. I get a, a message one day on Messenger. Oh, hey, you shit. like horror movies, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Joe, we've talked about this before so many times at work. Yeah, yeah. He's like, I've got this idea. I think we should try it. And we started out. I, I met Eugene. We ran our first show, and it was a shit show. It was, <laughs> it was so we were bad. Running, we were running software that was just garbage. It was just, it was. The editing took like a week. It was just, it was ridiculous. And uh, and now here we are, 300 and how many episodes in? Uh, so we're coming, so our 150th episode of Week in Horror is next month. We had 150 episodes, but we've officially, because we do one episode a week, 
So we've officially been. So we are now. Ju- we are now just past the halfway mark of season three, coming up on season four. That's insane. Yeah. Four, uh, almost four, uh, almost three complete seasons going into season four of Weekend Horror. There's been ups, there's been downs, there's been laughs, there's been cries, there's been babies. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, right. yes. Children have been born during the production. <laughs> not, not during the production. Not during the production. They were like, <laughs> that was a crazy episode. Let me tell you, that was a wild episode. <laughs> we can horror the archives. This is true, Aaron Reese. It is, it's sweet that we kept the version 1.0 models. They usually throw them out after an upgrade. <laughs> but uh, but we kicked we we kicked this bad boy off September of 2019. Um, we had no idea what was coming in 2020 and 2021. And as it, it turns out, like the podcast wound up being kind of like a life raft for for a bunch of us because. All of a sudden, you know, jobs were getting shut down, people weren't able to commute, and it's like, what were we going to do? And, you know, then all of a sudden we had we had Week in Horror, which we'd established September 2019. We got into 2020, the world decided to take a shit, and, and luckily we still had this. And it's, you know, it's led to so many opportunities and opened so many doors, open, you know, and uh, which is what we, which, what we hoped. And, of course, bringing you guys an amazing, you know, like trying to bring y'all an amazing show. And, uh... Man, speeding into season four—that is wild. Yeah, just, I'm thinking back to those first few episodes. It's just like, remember when we just had like no a way that we're going to do anything with this? We, I, it, the, it was so unstructured. It was so utterly unstructured when we started this thing. Oh, like, like I, I had it was an idea. Overstructured is what it was. Okay, well, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't. I've, I still have those old scripts. I still I know, have the old him. ones on. It's like I go word back. for word written out. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I go back and look at it, and I'm like, "What? What was like?" Because I had no idea what I was doing. I was like, "How do you script a podcast? How do you do this?" It was like, "We want to talk about horror movies." Okay, so let's find some horror movies to talk about. It's like, okay, great. Well, what horror movies should we talk about? Well, how about the ones that released this week? So, because I, I didn't want to do a review show. There's so many fucking review shows out there. I wasn't interested in being like, "Oh, hey, check out this movie." I'm not, you know, shilling. I'm not a shill for any particular films. I'll tell you what films I love, and I'll tell you what films I don't like. <laughs> and and I was like, I didn't want us to shill for people. I wanted us to legit, as filmmakers, sit down and talk about this stuff and why it's important, why the genre is important, why we love it, why we don't like it, why it's good, why you, why, you know what what works, what was culturally relevant at the time. These are the things that were important. To us, at least, and we wanted to talk about them. So I remember those first few scripts. I like, like, it was like, uh, how many movies? It was like six, five. Yeah, was it five movies? Five. I think it was five. Yeah, it was, it was five movies. And then we realized that five just was too many, and we, you know, we ended up rushing. It was, so I, I, so we dropped it to four, and then started structuring everything. And so people have it. it eventually, it evolved. You, you, you stick with it, and it evolves. So for anybody out there wanting to make a podcast. I can we can tell you the three of us the the original perpetrators of this show <laughs> we can tell you stick with it yeah when we started out we had no idea what we were doing we didn't know how to broadcast we didn't know how to record these things we we had a vague deal like you take a mic and it, this is how we started we would get together no audience and oh I think it was over discord right yeah so we'd get together over discord and we would run the show 
as you know, with no audience, and we would each record our own individual channels. So I would record my channel, and then Roost, and then uh, Alex, and then Eugene would record theirs, and then they would send those cha- the, those recordings to me. And then we would have to put them in the studio. We'd have to put them in the editing suite. We'd have to line them all up, sync them all together. And then if there were like communication problems with it, we had, it, it took flipping forever. And then not to mention adding in. Take, we had to do the claps at five seconds. And That's right. We had, oh, like, yeah. we, had, we had to clap ourselves in we, in order to try and, because we needed, we, needed we needed to slate ourselves in <laughs> in order to make sure that we were all synced. And so we was, uh, shut up, Aaron Reese. <laughs> <laughs> says, wait, this is the improved version? He's <laughs> such a tool. So, yeah, so, yeah, so we we had no idea. And we I didn't know how to write a script for, for a podcast, so I just threw down what I thought. And then eventually, over time, we kept plugging away at it. We kept fighting with it. There was one episode where we had a guy, where we brought in our first guy, who was going to be like our rotate, a part of our rotation. before. This was light years before ever Johnny O ever even heard of us. And why we brought him. Fight, why do you got to bring? You're gonna just cause PTSD here, man. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I love bringing. Because I love bringing up the fact that we brought in a guy. We brought in a dude. He's a good guy. I've worked with him. I've worked on film projects with him before. He's a good dude. We bring him in to kind of rotate with us, and we had this one episode where we were recording our audio, and so we did the full show, and everything was fantastic. And then he he didn't hit record. So we only had me and Eugene, and all of his stuff was blank. So there's like these big gaps in what me and Eugene were saying were his responses. And then you find out, I was like, hey, we need your audio, we need your audio. He didn't record anything. And we were coming up to publication time. And it was like, what the shit? And then, so we were like, so we had to go really fast, and we had to record two episodes simultaneously, two episodes back to back. because And we brought Alex in. Alex covered it. Eugene and I have already been over this, so it's like old. It's like old. It's like tiring for us. Alex has got to throw in there, but then on turnaround, we then had to record the next episode that Alex was going to be a part of, and so that was just it. Was just a nightmare. It was, it was, nightmare. It was, but that, these, was that was over five hours of sitting there recording. Yeah. <laughs> but by the I know we've talked about it, but by the end of it, I was literally sitting on the ground. Just, just in the corner of my room that I was recording in, and I was just, I was just talking because it was like, I, I'm just gonna sleep while we do this. It was ridiculous. <laughs> and then Aaron you, you Reese brings like up. The, oh, go ahead, go get, ahead. You get to like the tenth movie, and like I don't even remember what that movie was, and we're just like, yeah, that was an okay movie. Yeah, yeah, that has some yeah, stuff. That was great. Anyway, yeah, all right. But the time, you're so tired. You're so tired. You can barely remember the film you're talking about. And it was just it was. It, but it worked. I mean, the episodes out there. It's it's live. It's not one of the ones that it's, the first two episodes we did. We held back because we didn't know what we were doing, and those are archived. So we never. We just never aired them. Um, but he says, meanwhile, uh, Aaron Reese says, meanwhile, you yank some asshole out of the audience and it works out well. Ain't life a bitch? <laughs> Sometimes it is. <laughs> um, you, you got yanked by your asshole? That had to hurt. <laughs> that had to hurt. <laughs> <laughs> but it did. Ivy Gentry says, don't lie. You found out, you found him failing to debunk Flat Earth. <laughs> So true. Um, that's true. Travis Brett says, you forgot Johnny O coming in the group, and now he's the invisible man. So Johnny coming in was was fun because we needed someone to rotate with. And Johnny really, Johnny loves horror movies as much as I do. He's also uh, a filmmaker. He works in the industry. 
And I'm glad I'm glad that Weekend Horror has offered him, has gotten him so many opportunities to do this because it's getting him, getting him, uh, it's putting him in a position where he can live the life if he wants to and make the money doing what he wants to do, which is you know doing live streams and of course doing film work and getting out there doing editing work, doing sound work, doing you know doing lighting stuff, whatever he can get his hands on. So he's doing really really fantastic. And uh, was a diagnosed horse that I know I've been working on launching a YouTube channel for probably just long, if not longer than this podcast has been going. ADHD and some other issues have made it really hard. It is difficult. It it it, it, it require. It, I will. I won't lie. It requires focus. You have to. You have to. It, it requires focus, and you got to keep your nose to the grindstone. But whether or not you have like you have, I know ADHD can be problematic. And I know that that life can be distracting. As long as you keep plugging away, walking one foot is better than walking no feet. Is what is, is what I've always tried to tell people. Mm-hmm. Some movement in the in the forward direction is is better than no movement in the forward direction. You keep moving forward. Just keep pushing it. Whether you we've get a foot, whether like you get a mile, to, do it, it's not going to work out every single time. We've run into that before, where it's like, you know what? This is we've had to step back and be like, this is not going to go the way that we thought it was going to go what can we do instead and you know you probably don't even notice it on the audience side half the time because it's all behind the scenes but there's a lot going on it's between that's why i'm not here all the time like life got real real busy i had a fourth child i've got a a new career path that i'm headed down and stuff gets in the way so you got to be able to improvise on the fly but you're absolutely right you got to stick with it you know you can look at it and be like well i'll skip this one and then you're like well i'll skip the next one and then it just gets easier to skip it than do it and then you stop doing it so i think that's that's the biggest thing jail has really pushed on that and i think that's why weekend horror has really been as successful as it has been because there's been push motivation when somebody's down the other person comes in and picks them up Mm -hmm. so you gotta you got that backing you got that that motivation behind you definitely is what kept this podcast afloat for sure. Yeah, and you know, so and, it, and of course the awesome fans. Yeah, <laughs> definitely the audience. Absolutely the audience. It, the it, 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 when you're doing it, it's about it's about having that support structure behind you and developing that support structure and those individuals who are not only willing to but able to and and, and enjoy you know picking up. So sometimes you got to bow out and you know you and trust. And having that trust uh, that you that you build over time, and that's what we that's successfully what we have, that is what we've done here. But the, what what Alex brought up first and foremost, the thing that's helped us to maintain this cohesion is our amazing audience, is all of you yes. out there, and uh, it makes it makes the juggling act wor- worth it. And so every Aaron Reese says every week is a juggle to get seats filled because this is the easy part. It's the prep that takes commitment, and yeah, it, it just yeah. takes a lot of prep. It, it takes research. We have to watch all the movies. I know it seems like, but when you're watching movies for entertainment, it's different than watching movies to speak about them coherently. And actually, I don't know what your computer's doing there. You in the Matrix? <laughs> I just it's fucking. I live in a wormhole, Jail. I live in a fucking wormhole. <laughs> so, uh, but we thank. We have to thank. We have to give our gratitude to the entire to the weekend horror fan uh, fans out there. Y'all make this possible. You know, it's not that, you know, we would still do a show. We did a show when we didn't have an audience. We were just putting out a show. But y'all make it 100% worth it. Worth it to come out here. And the fact that y'all take from the show what we hoped you would. You get to see movies that you hadn't thought of or hadn't heard of. You get to see stuff and and see it in a a light. 
you know, that that we wanted to bring to you. And that's what makes this whole horror genre so amazing is the love that we have for this genre, for the love that we have for these films, whether they're good or they're bad or they're being laughed on at MST3K or they're making hundreds of million, millions of dollars like The Lighthouse. It doesn't matter. Is that we love the whole genre and y'all love the genre and y'all and that we we revel in that. So that's what makes it so much fun. You made me cry. Yes, thank you so much, by the way. <laughs> Plus, like ever since doing the show, like I used to have to go out and search for horror movies now. Now I just have the list. Okay, that's what we're watching this week. You got four new and ones you to look. Well, I finally I finally broke down. I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna write out all the movies for the season. Because the, the the horror movie data the, the database that we that we've created is so enormous now, and so now I was like, well, you know what? I'm just going to set the movies for the rest of the year for the rest of the season. And so now we have this giant list. Is like this what we're going to hit every single week? Boom, boom, boom. And then some weeks we dread, and then some weeks we don't. Yeah, you know, we some weeks. Oh, I'm so looking forward to this week. But it was like that. Like oh, we got to get. We like we had to get through the witchcraft week. So it was kind of like oh, but we finally got through it. So we got past it. <laughs> exactly, Aaron Reese. Or you get recruited. Jail's like, let's review the entire witchcraft series. Exactly. <laughs> Aaron, I cannot tell you what a pain in the ass it was to write that damn script. It, it, that script was a bitch. Because <laughs> I had to go to through it. write a script when your eyeballs are rolled to the back of your head because <laughs> you're just like, <laughs> And Sally Skelton says, I have a list of movies that I've never heard of before. And that's the awesome thing, is that I cannot tell you. And and it's not only that. It's not only bringing up movies. This is what I love the most. It's not just about bringing up movies that people have never seen before. But it's being able to reintroduce, or I would say introduce, this new, kind of like the new generation, to films that we grew up with, that they may never have heard of, just because they're they're old classics. One of my favorite moments in this show was being able to introduce the audience to Night of the Creeps. It's one of my favorite 80s classic monster films. You know, good good classic zombie film. We have plenty of good one-liners. Got fucking Tom Atkins is just, you know, off the chain in that. Some of the best shit, you know. And I, I love them. I love that movie. I love it so much. It's one of my favorite Tom Atkins films. Tom Atkins films. And then I got to turn around and meet Tom Atkins. So I meet the man personally, and I tell him, hey, we run this, and I had the Weekend Horror shirt on, and I was like, yeah, we run this podcast where we talk about horror movies, and I just want to let you know, we recently got to introduce, uh, like, all of, like, the new generation that listens to us to Night of the Creeps. Like, people who had never even heard of this movie, and we got to re, and we got to introduce it to all of them, and they went out and they fucking loved it, and, you know, it's just, and he was like, dude, that is fucking cool, and he gave me a free picture with him. So, which is really, really neat. But, uh, but he just thought, but he, Tom Atkins, who was in that role in the 1980s, he was like, that is freaking cool. That's awesome that people out there talking about this old stuff and bringing it up so that it doesn't get forgotten. That, that made my fucking year. That just was like, you know, seeing the effect that y'all have, uh, on the people who are making this stuff was just beyond cool. So, you know, we've, we've been, we've been wistful enough. To be honest, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I digress. All right, but as we've been as we've been talking about all this past and why we do what we do, we've kind of strayed off. So you know what, Jo, we're doing a podcast about horror movies. Let's talk about yes, we are horror movies. What do we got? What do we got up first today? 
Okay, for our Speaking first classic. <laughs> yes, for our first <laughs> the most recent film on the list. The, the most recent film on the list, absolutely. Because uh, we because not only do we have this one, we're also going to go way back in the way back machine this week. Uh, but for the first movie we're talking about tonight is the movie You Should Have Left, released June nineteenth, twenty twenty. Let's check. Let's take a look at this trailer. So, You Should Have Left, directed by David Cope and screenplay by David Cope based on the novella You Should Have Left by Daniel Kelman, starring Kevin Bacon, Amanda Seyfried, and Avery Essex. Um, uh, this one, the film itself centers around a family. Uh, Kevin Bacon's character is married to Amanda Seyfried, who is an actress, and they decide to take a break um, because their lives are just pretty chaotic, and they decide to take a break in the uh, Welsh countryside. At a, staying at an Airbnb, and it turns out that the house, um, obviously not a safe place to take a vacation at, and uh, things get wild and insane when they realize that the ho- inside of the house is not what it really appears to be. Um, secrets come out, and things go nuts. I don't want to spoil too much, because we have a moratorium on films that are uh, less than five years old, but uh, I'll, I, I, I was conflicted on this particular one. So, Just like other things that happened in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to forget this one. Anyway. So the, the film in itself was, it wasn't that terrible. It, it, it wasn't bad. Okay. One thing that I can always applaud Blumhouse for is that Blumhouse puts a lot of work into, into a clean and very, very good looking movie. Their cinematography is always on point. The, their use of light and shadow, their, their DPs are always excellent. They always make for excellent looking films. So the, fi- the movie itself did, um, I thought was amazingly effective when it came to the use of light and shadow, when it came to the use of depth and perspective. I thought that worked, and that works well for a house that supposedly the interior of it is larger than the, than the exterior of it. So to create like this uh, labyrinth-like interior that you can easily get lost in and become trapped within. And I thought that the way they made that, especially like the sequences like the staircase, okay, like the staircase when he's going down and like the light swinging back and forth. And I thought there was a lot of brilliant uh, visualization in the film, shot very, very well. The problem is, is that the effects, it wasn't really effects, but the style that they used seemed to be the foundation for the movie. It's like, we're going to rest everything upon the visual appeal of the movie, which creates an almost surrealistic effect, but that's really all it's got going for it. And despite the fact that the performances were good, that I thought Kevin Bacon was very, I love Kevin Bacon, everything he does, you know, from Friday the 13th all the way to now, I've never seen a thing I didn't like that he's, that he's been in, especially, you know, he's, he's effective horror actor. He was fantastic in Stir of Echoes. And Amanda Seyfried is also very effective. The little girl was amazing. Oh, she was fantastic. And even though it was good, it put too much weight on something that should be supporting to the story. The story should be able to hold up on its own without having to do all this cool stuff with the camera or do do, do cool stuff as far as the set design goes. Unfortunately, all the weight is on that. And when you take that away and you try to really dive into the characters themselves, what's going on... It just doesn't hold, it didn't hold up for me, which is a shame because a lot of work went into making this house look fantastic, to look both comforting and kind of threatening in a way. The aesthetics, the the architecture, the set design was brilliant. 
And then unfortunately, oh, all just, just wasted. All, all just wasted. It just surrealism for the sake of surrealism is just, I, it doesn't play. It... <laughs> same, same. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, to, to me, it's something that I really wanted to like it. I wanted to. It has so many good things going for it, yeah, you know. There's, there's so many, so many, so many great aspects to it, but it just—it felt like it was just missing something. And as as you talk about the house, in of itself, honestly, I thought the house could be a little bit more. It was um, so I modern. Thought... It was like something you'd see in LA. It was well. That that's what was interesting is that you, you bring up it was the architectural design of it doesn't fit in no. the in the picturesque Welsh landscape. Well, yeah, it, I mean, it stands out. It's kind of like wow, yeah. this thing is out here. But like you know, a brand new house that was built in twenty twenty doesn't scare me as much as you know an old creepy house that has a past. And I get it; it, it, it runs with the story. But you know, you, it's that's it's hard. I don't know. Yeah, the the architecture just, of the house threw me off immediately. I'm like, this doesn't belong, and it doesn't make me scared at all. Like, the house doesn't scare me at all. Aaron Reese, uh, I see what you're bringing up. Says, why has no one referred to House of Fall- House of Leaves yet? It's House of Leaves, and uh, the uh, it's the that the book by Mark Danieluski, who is the brother of the music artist Poe. Um, yeah. Mark Danieluski's book. To, okay, so. His book is fantastic. It's about a descent into madness regarding a man who discovers that the house that they, that he has bought is, when they're going to do a remodel, discovers that the house is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. And it's only bigger by like an inch. And it's then slowly but surely... Why would you complain? <laughs> but then slowly but surely, <laughs> as, they, as, he, as he tries to figure out why this, why this mathematical impossibility is occurring... He slowly but surely that the house gets bigger and bigger and it gets wilder and wilder and it's all insane. It's just, it's a descent into madness is what that story is about. This one takes elements from that, but this was like I said, this was based on a novella by another author that the house being on the inside, being uh, being bigger on the inside than it is on the outside, is just a supporting part of the plot. Is that the house in and of itself is not really a house. So, and I can't, I don't want to spoil too much by telling you what's going on because that will essentially spoil the plot of the movie. But the idea of that, like I said, they do really, really well as far as the, the set design and conveying the house in itself. But you can't rest an entire picture on that. It's, the thing is, is characterization. You want to rest a movie on something, you rest a movie on a plot and characterization. That's what... Mm-hmm. People will overlook everything else except for sound. People will overlook everything else as long as you have great characterization and you have a great story to tell. Um, it just felt like it felt like flashy parlor tricks, basically. It's like, man, we can we can we can have jump scares and we can do set up some scary situations and we can basically you can dress it up really really well. And it looks really pretty and we'll throw Kevin Bacon and Man of Secret. Both of them are fantastic actors on it. And it's just kind of, ah. like I, I just, I feel like, I feel like I'm going to forget this movie in like three months. Like, right. I like that, that, that's kind of totally how I feel. Yeah. Totally yeah. forgettable. So, okay. So the big things with this, you get real big secret window vibes off of it. Um, and I think that was an issue because going from the movie to the book in the book, he was like a, screenwriter, right? Mm-hmm. He's, a, he's a screenwriter, or not? Yeah, he was, he was a screenwriter. And then you know, Secret Window, you got Johnny Depp as uh, 
like the, the novelist. And so it's just, it's a descent into madness. And so I know the director wanted to change that up when he put it on the screen, because if you copied book to screen, it would have just been the secret window. Um, and, and so that kind of, it kind of took away from it because they had to add in this whole other story of Kevin Bacon and his criminal past. So it's like, it didn't translate well to me. Um, a big thing that got me, you're talking about the cinematics of this whole thing was the lighting. It was, it was so light the whole movie. Even when he was like turning switches off when he's like, Oh my God, so many switches. He'd turn a switch off, but like the room behind him would be lit up. And that kind of threw me off, you know, with, with the, the sharp lines of the house. And it was hard to, focus on one part of the movie because there were so many different things that would catch your eye um, and kind of pull you away from the story. So it, it, that's, that's just going into it. It's kind of hard to, to get a hold of. And then you got to follow the plot and you got to follow everything. And it takes like an hour for you to even really start to get into like the house being weird. And, and uh, it's, it's hard. It's hard to follow. If you can follow through, like you said, Jill, it's not a bad movie. The plot's just really hard to, stay engaged with and and it wasn't even supposed to be kevin bacon nicholas cage was originally cast for, for yeah. <laughs> yes that, that would that would have been interesting to, to yeah. see the cage to see the cage rage to rage against the cage it was um, perfect slow descent into madness and in the wacky world it's it's every the, single time the the kicker on this one is obviously ad- adapting from book to film is always really really difficult and taking a look at the novella that this is based on the novella uh was written in diary format so all everything is like the the like the chapter entries of what of this guy recounting his own personal experiences and what the novella has working for it is that it feels very, very personal and it relies very heavily on it. It has the unreliable narrator. We don't know if the story is being conveyed correctly through the lens of what this guy is seeing. It is obvious he has problems and it's obvious that his that his hold on his grip on reality is slipping. And that comes to him with what he's writing, which creates a more terrifying story. That's what works. The problem is that other stories have done it better and other movies have done it better. So like you said, Secret Window, Stephen King's Secret Window is a big, uh, is a, well, I think would take some influence, this took some influence from that. Not to mention um, The Night House was a much, much better uh, shot uh, film because while it still deals with the creepy house and weird aesthetics and stuff like that, the characterization was much stronger. I really, really felt for everybody in that. When the events take place, when they get into the house and things start falling apart, the problem is is that we don't really, we never get the opportunity to attach to anybody or to identify with anyone. Everyone's got their issues, and and it's all about likability. The only I didn't, you know, I didn't really. There's nothing really super likable about Kevin Bacon's character, nothing super likable about Amanda Seyfried's character, and but the only one I really identified it with was the little girl. Is that I could see her fear of being in this place that is unrecognizable and is scary, and trying to understand that then the you know the sequence where she where she's lost in the house. These that I could get I could get with, but when you can't identify with your primary character because this is Kevin Bacon's story, it's his character's story. When you can't get you know get around with that, it just is kind of like uh, and then of course the way it ends is kind of like, was it worth it? This is a really cool way to shoot a movie, and a lot of effort went into it, but. There's also, I mean, not to mention plot holes there. And once you get done with it, you recognize that there were plot holes about it. It felt very much like watching us again, where there were several plot holes that were within it. It was kind of like, oh, why didn't they show this up? Personally, yeah, movies like Deep House and The Night House did it so much better. This one, unfortunately, just doesn't have enough because all the weight was put 
on what should be supporting the movie and not what the movie's about. It should this shouldn't be the bulk of it. It's like, wow, really cool aesthetics, but why am I here? And the movie really can't answer that. Listen, you mentioned yeah. plot holes. <laughs> as soon as you mention plot hole, guess who shows up in the chat? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, you're talking about plot holes. There was there's a ton of them. It was like, but it it felt awesome to be you're like having your fun with this puzzle and like you said at the end of it you're like but was i right were the things that i was trying to puzzle together and all those was i right you never find out and it's it's not even like a good like ambiguous it's just like a okay like you're like, <laughs> this like, like you find out it's just kind of like yeah um, and it's hard because blumhouse man it, you got stuff like Fantasy Island. Sometimes they just miss. And I think that this what this was was it was a it was a well it was a good it was a um, a solid novella that a lot of people enjoyed. Yeah. And but it's from a writer who's not super established, and so they were able to pick up the rights to it on the cheap and make a quick movie. So when when studios have the money to secure the rights to to interesting books that are not super expensive, it's a way to get those rights and make a quick movie. Kind of like, and you know, there's always budget justifications, and ha- like, ha- what, what do we have this money for? And we got to make, we got to make movies somehow. So when you get to this size, you sometimes you just have to generate movies. Very similar to old school Hollywood, when studios would owe actors movies. It's like, well, you know, we promised them a six picture deal, and unfortunately, they don't have the box office draw they used to, so we're not going to put them in any of our big budget pictures, but we still owe them movies. So we're contractually obligated. So they will literally find something to make a movie real quick, stick the actor in it to fulfill their contractual obligation. Similar to this, sometimes you, you need to produce films because you are contractually obligated to do so. This kind of felt like that. This was more a business decision than trying to make a movie that works. And that's why so many things are kind of left to pot. It's like, yeah, we're going to do a good job. And we're going to we're going to deliver a movie that's that's interesting to watch, but it's not going to be one that we remember. And there are going to be other movies out there that do it a lot better, just because they're more interested in telling a really cohesive narrative. This one wasn't worried about that. That's why it felt like, hey, we got the we got the rights, we secured them real fast, or maybe we just got them in kind of like a rights buy. It's like, oh, get 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 the rights to all this stuff. Now let's make a movie real quick to fill the slate until we can get to our next tentpole film. Well, and so that's kind is- of what it felt like. It kind of cheapened it for me. Well, the, I mean, that's the thing with Blumhouse's formula. So Blumhouse doesn't make very many $100 million films. I think what probably what Halloween was maybe its first one. Yeah. Blumhouse sticks around the 10 maybe $15 million range, and their their goal is quantity right. on it. They're, they're going to make 10 $10 million films over $100 million films because they know if they hit on one of those $10 million films, it's going to pay for all of them. They like they they know that that's what that's been Blumhouse's formula since Paranormal Activity, and the thing is, is everybody remembers the ones that hit, the ones that the ones that made it. Those are the ones that stick in, and most people forget about the the other five films in that group of ten movies that didn't hit, I fell off. And this is one of those movies where it was like, hey, we're putting out there because we're just going to throw and see what sticks. And this happens to be one that just didn't stick. Right. Definitely not one of their worst, but definitely not, not one of their best. So just kind of kind of a throwaway. But I would say it, it's not it's not so bad that you that I would say just ignore it. If you want to see a really good example of a film that 
from a cinematography standpoint, just from, from shooting a space, you know, an exercise in light and shadow and depth and perspective, this is a really good movie to watch. I would say for anybody who's a DP, for anybody who's a cinematographer, anybody who is in a lighting department or, or even in a sound department, check this thing out because the way the space is designed makes for a really eerie atmosphere. And that worked. Unfortunately, it was really the only thing that really worked, which is why the movie kind of kind of falters. Just because they put oh, they put all their eggs in one basket, unfortunately. But for anybody interested in these kinds of things, it's a cool movie to watch. And I'll say that a movie with a good atmosphere can 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 sell a lot, you know? And this one I think does on those terms, but as far as anything else, yeah, it was kind of it was kind of weak. But um but definitely check it out if you get the opportunity. It's on Amazon Prime. And of course, uh, this brings me to the question I want to ask. I want to ask the audience, what is y'all's favorite? Because I love me some Kevin Bacon. I you know, just I've loved him. I've loved him ever since. And I love it, Tremors. One of my favorite films. I love Tremors. But I love Kevin Bacon. I love his performances. I want to know what the live audience, what y'all's favorite Kevin Bacon horror film is, because he's done many of them. So, what is y'all's favorite Kevin Bacon-led horror, Kevin Bacon horror film, a horror film starring Kevin Bacon? Let us know in the live chat, or down in the comments below, or at weekendhorror at gmail.com. So, well, it doesn't necessarily have to be starring Kevin Bacon. Kevin not necessarily, Bacon yeah. He could yeah. be supporting to it, supporting to it as well. <laughs> Sir Kevin says, the DP and Grip should get, should get Bacon's paycheck. <laughs> Probably. Because <laughs> they did a really good job. A really good job. <laughs> Mr. Malord says Footloose. Footloose, <laughs> <laughs> terrifying. Travis Brown says Tremors. Got some love for Tremors. Diagnosis says Friday the 13th and Tremors. Yep. Oh, uh, Andrew Rivera says technically it would be uh, Hollow Man. Hollow Man would be the yeah, one Hollow that uh, Kevin Bacon was in, but Hollow Man was I enjoyed Hollow Man. I did. Um, Aaron Reese says Wild Things. Horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Sally, Sally Skellington says, uh, Tremors was filmed down where I used to live. Interesting. Very cool. Ooh. Awesome. Ooh, Sir Cas- just flat- sounds like Texas. <laughs> Sir Cas- <laughs> says Flatliners. Flatliners was good. Flatliners was good. Yes. Um, Extra J, good to see you. Thanks so much for being here. And Surf says, yep, Footloose. <laughs> Diagnosaur, Diagnosaur says, Flatliners is good too, but I don't really call it horror. I think it had some horror elements in it. It, it, it's more like I would say it wasn't as hardcore as like Jacob's Ladder, but I think there were some there were some sequences in it that were that were pretty scary. Oh, Mister Lord says Sir of Echoes for horrible Chicago accent. <laughs> 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 Gotta yeah, love. He misses that one pretty hard. All right, so uh, Eugene, you got our next one. Let's uh, let's go back to the eighties. All right, fuck yeah. back to the well, glorious hair dye and headbands. Yes. <laughs> Get your headband on. This, this movie is so 80s. It's just like... <laughs> it doesn't get more 80s in this movie. But this is the golden age of the 80s slasher films. We have The Scare Maker, which was released June 20th. Roll it. Nice. <laughs> the Scare Maker. <laughs> the Scare Maker. <laughs> all right the scare maker also under the title girls night out is directed by robert dubell starring rutania alda suzanne barnes 
Lauren Marie Taylor, Julia Montgomery, James Carell, Al McGreer, David Hollowbrook, and Hal Hollowbrook. And basically, you have a bunch of college kids that end up going on a scavenger hunt, and they get killed off by someone dressed as the mascot from their school. As you can see with the claws coming out of the bear. Yes. <laughs> So th- this is an interesting thing. Oh, and and it's just well, what the fuck was that? <laughs> that was that. That's pure. That that is eighty slasher. It. That's eighty slasher gold, is what that was. And I have to say, I have to address this. So Jinju says, so there is TNA in this film. Uh, <gasps> unfortunately, <gasps> no. There is no TNA in this movie. There, shockingly so. But that's one thing that we're, that we're going to address. I think there was there was one thing, and it was a, it was, there was one bare ass, and it was, there a, was a butt. There was there a was butt, and butt. it was a dude's. Right. It was a dude's butt. Yeah. But there was no there were no titties, and there, no. I mean there there was no sex. None of it. There was like post and after scenes. Post. There was post post coitus. Yeah. No. Post post haste. Post coitus. Post haste. Yeah, like I was saying that this is not your typical '80s slasher. No, no the budget said no on all that <laughs> <laughs> because they spent it all on the damn soundtrack. <laughs> One thing that they, seriously though, how did they end up? They have like big names on that soundtrack, which is great, but so it, it doesn't. There's there's like no gore. I mean, there's like a little bit of like blood, but there's really nothing like super gory. And you come out in '82, which is preceding all sorts of the goriest. You know, big, was Alien and... Well, you consider what's after, what, what it came after. It's coming on... Yeah. Because uh, Tex Frymer... Or, sorry, Tex Frymer. Texas Chainsaw Massacre was Texas 1974. Yeah. Uh, Halloween was 1978. You've got 1980 mm-hmm. had uh, Friday the 13th. 81 had The Burning. You've got a number of big-name slasher films that came out before this. That's why I was, I was like, wow. After I was done with this, I was really impressed because it kind of went the realm with the route of, like, April Fool's Day. Where it was trying to, it was saying, it was, let's take from the tropes. You know, let, let, let's, but we're not going to lean too hard on what's already established. Just trying to do something a little bit different. That's why no TNA, very little gore. You do have some blood. A unique kind of killer that did the guy. And while well, I'm in, it seems goofy now. But at the time, it's like, that's kind of inspired. Dress up like the bear mascot right. and then put like the, the knives through the, the, through the hand so you can... Uh, I thought that was kind of okay. I can see They've it. They made it so realistic up to that point, and spent so much time focused on the kills and the scariness of it that 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 was original. Um, the dialogue in the movie was fucking hilarious and <laughs> it, it was original. It, but you, that's what you noticed. You focused on that storyline more than oh, how are they going to you know replicate the same kills that they've done in every single movie? So I think what they did was take the horror parts of it and make them short, sweet, and to the point. To an extent of let's not make their mind race this way, but let's actually tell our story, which is like it's it's a fun plot and like with the mascot, it's like what the fuck we're fucking the uh, Outback Steakhouse steak knives that go. Through. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were they were like 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 restaurant like steak knives. Steak knives. <laughs> they literally had no budget <laughs> for anything, but it worked well and it was funny and it was you know it, the it got the okay this is a slasher movie without focusing on this is a slasher movie this is our movie watch it and enjoy it have fun but here's you know we have to fit it into this this genre so let's do these quick little kills and get them over with let's not spend a whole bunch of time and money on that 
yeah, I think no, it, it was it, definitely it different took, than it took some interesting trope. So it, it, it I mean, t- it takes elements from a, from a bunch of previous ones. It's got the the full the full clad killer, much like Slumber Party Massacre or much like yep. soror- Sorority House Massacre. That's, then you've yeah. got yeah, then you've got the uh, the radio DJ who's kind of playing through the whole thing because everything because the soror- the uh, the scavenger hunt going on is being led is being led by the DJ. So that has kind of a feel from the from the fog from Carpenter's The Fog, which came out in 1980. It takes a lot of elements. And not to mention all the wood shit, which us, you know, obvious burning and Friday the Thirteenth takes elements from that. I, it, but it didn't. And of course, the the kind of twist at the end. The twist at the end was so uh, slumber, uh, slumber. Uh, God like dang it! You think it's sleepaway camp? Sleepaway camp. Thank you. Yeah. Was very sleepaway camp. And then, of course, not to mention the kind of like. Come on, when because it turns out that the you know, that they're twins, and so when he does the whole sequence where he's like the picture drawing the hair on the picture, like <gasps> you know, and the big like oh, it's like it, it, it pulls from a lot, but it was it felt very homageish, and I liked what they did with it, and that they didn't rely to it. They tried to do something new, and that's what I dug. That's what I dug about this: is, is try to introduce something new to the genre. Uh, don't do what everybody else is doing because you know it's lazy and it's cheap and usually comes off as it's just a knockoff. You know, pay respect to the work done before you, but try to bring, try to inject something interesting to it. And I think this is not to mention. I will give it this: there was a moment where I jumped. The editing and the timing in this film were quite good, and the sequence when she's running away and or where she's like, and she's like, "Hey, Benson, you know, I'm in here. Come and get me." And then the, you know, it, it, you know, cuts to the door because you know the, the the killer in the bear costume is walking outside, and then all of a sudden, bam, through the window, and he grabs her. Like that got me. I the, the timing on it was well done. The editing was spot on. I was like, oh shit, I really wasn't expecting that. I was like, so it had some good, some good Jason editing in there. You know, I was impressed. And um, what Alex mentioned about the dialogue, I love that the that the writer of this, and to give some credit where it's due, so Joe Bolster. Uh, wrote your classic kind of 80s misogyny in this. But while at the same time recognizing the kind of the increase in in feminism uh, and uh, women having a voice, especially sexually having a voice. Because the killer is constantly calling all the victims sluts and whores and, you know, killing them for that reason. The, the classic, you know, classic slasher trope. But the fact that all the dialogue, all the women's, the the female dialogue in this was magnificent because it's all of them, majority of it's all of them standing up for themselves. And I really, really like that. There was no cowing to the, to the, like the, the misogynistic male mentality. All these girls stand up for themselves and stand up for their sexuality and they don't make apologies for being sexual creatures. And I liked that. I like that. That whole deal was like, hey, I'm the captain of the basketball team. And she's like, hey, I don't care. I and don't I was like, care. damn. <laughs> Stuff you would not expect in an 80s horror film. No, there's no like girls like fawning over guys. All the guys are fawning over the girls. I really like this. And I dug it. There wasn't a specific final girl. It's just a good classic killer running around killing, you know, killing everybody. I dug it. And with a nice little twist at the end. It surprised me. It was a lot better than I thought. Yeah, it was something. It was something. I I enjoyed it. Um, talking about we're talking about earlier is the '80s style of cinematography, and it has a lot of the real hard shadows. Because cinematography wise, 
the style right now is everything's supposed to look natural lights. It's natural light, some real soft shadows. If you look, go back and look at you should have left. It has that natural, the light comes in from the giant windows or from the lamp in the corner. Whereas you look at a lot of these 80s films, and especially with this one, is no, that light's just gonna beam in. She's outside in the middle of there's just a hard light coming right here. We know that's not the moon at all. That's somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> like the way but what it's interesting is is that that's a, a common style in a lot of cinematography from the 80s where it was you didn't quite have the full poltergeist budget that steven spielberg had where he could do we can light however you want it's like no we got x amount of lights we have to light it enough so that you can see it, so it's going to show up on film. So we're just going to lean into it really hard. And it'll be really kind of interesting to see some films kind of make a comeback like that. Like, I would see, love to see an 80s homage shot in that way of that traditional 80s style to get that kind of feel to it. I think that would be really kind of cool. Uh, that would be kind of cool to do. But there are actually, there are some shots, like when she's on the payphone talking. For some reason, that I really enjoy that shot. I think it's just the, the lighting just layered on her face looks really well. But um, but as a whole, for the budget and for what they really have to work with, I thought it was shot well. Definitely. <laughs> just... What? <laughs> Nothing. It's, it's, this movie. No, it was great. You're, I'm just laughing because it's like I keep thinking about the costume. It was really only – I'm trying to think of any <laughs> movie that used – like a like a character like that. I know there was like masks and clowns and all that stuff, but there was no like character like mascot, no dolls. You know, it was like it was all. It had to be an alien or a, a, a masked serial killer, and then they bring in a fucking bear costume you know, <laughs> with the little eyes that are just clearly like cut out. From it's like like felt that just this is stuck on the uh, yeah. It's, it's very yeah. very obviously it's like a made. terrible. That's what makes it fun is that terrible costume. It's like they know they know what their movie was. They knew what it was and they leaned into it. You know, it, it was it was more of a sea horror and they're like, fuck it, let's just make it, let's have fun. And it turned out to be really good for a, a fucking movie. Well, I, I, I like the the showing the formation of the of the of the weapon. It's yeah. like you oh, you yeah. see the killer putting it together, taping the knives to their hand. So that they would have that kind of flexibility. It's like, oh, I see, I see what they're setting up, and then putting the the mascot is like, and then the oh, claw. I was like, okay, that's kind of neat. Just you know, because the bear is like, oh, bear, and it kills. I just, it was like, hey, you're a crazy person. You're putting on a costume to like kill somebody. I was like, why not? Why, why, why not do it that way? I, I thought it was clever. I'm like, ah, oh, bear claw. <laughs> interesting the fact that <laughs> that it's like a real like like it's a real kind of looking mascot versus could you take like happy death day where they kill a dress up as a mascot you look at the mascot and you're like who the fuck has a baby as a mascot <laughs> that's a fucking creepy baby whereas this is like this is a fun teddy bear and then all of a sudden knives come out Especially seeing how goofy it was, because they they get they establish it. There's they're establishing us. Uh, all of the establishing in this film is really really well done, and you get a really good sense of everybody that's in it. So I really I was able to follow these people really really well and follow their follow their arcs. A lot of weed smoking, a lot of drinking, a lot of before sex, a lot of after sex, 
and uh, the fact that the mascot, the dude who's the mascot, my, Benson, the guy Benson, who's uh, wearing the, who's, who's, who's the mascot for the school, running around acting like an idiot when he's in this, that whole humping scene, that whole like, ah, <laughs> uh, is essentially what his character was. You know, yeah. he's just a goofball in the in the mascot suit, and then to turn around, that's why that's why he's able to walk around. That's why the killer's able to walk around the campus, and nobody's afraid of him. It's because we've established this. That everybody's come to expect this. Like, oh, who's got me? Oh, Benson, get off of me. You know? And because they they just come to expect it. Then the killer puts it on and can walk around free to target whoever it wants because everybody says, oh, hey, it's Benson. And then they're dead. They did really, really well. It's just, and unfortunately, it was the title issue. The title issue is the problem here is because originally it was released as The Scare Maker. And then re-released as Girls Night Out. Neither of which I think work well for it, but it didn't really make money until after it became Girls' Night Out, um, because that's not really the focus of it. And I don't, I don't think either one gives a good sense of the film itself. It, uh, it could have done well with a better title, but I don't think the Scare Maker worked very well, and neither does Girls' Night Out, which is why I don't think a lot of people really heard about this. Yeah, because yeah, also you got to think of the timing that it's released in '82. Yeah, so many horror movies have came out, but right before, right afterwards, this is one of these that just kind of gets lost in the shuffle. And you're right, neither one of these, neither one of the titles, because Scare Maker, something more like something grotesque or like Friday the 13th, where you just have like this like big monster or killer guy. And if you the title like girls night out you're expecting you need a lot of tna or just some kind of porn like that right. and, and that and you you get neither one in this film so the fact you, that it's co-eds you expect tits you expect like tna when it's college co-heads because in in horror movies that's all college kids can think about when they're going to school is they can think about dodging killers and and fucking each other every opportunity that they get because you know, that that's what we all grew up thinking college was we all grew up thinking that that's what college was. This is like, I can't wait to go to college because then I'm going to have all the sex. But it, it obviously doesn't doesn't happen that way. Well, at least it, it didn't for me. But nonetheless, um, <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, the scavenger hunter. Sir Kazan brings up the sca- I think actually he says the scavenger hunt hunter. I actually think the scavenger hunter would have been good or scavenger. That would have been a good title. That would have been a good title. The scavenger. Yeah, that would that would be an excellent title. So I mean, <laughs> and Andy says jail for me too. Yeah, solidarity, brother. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when it, so I think yeah, Girls Night Out, and you, know, it, Travis, you are correct. Yeah, Arrow video video released it on Blu-ray. Um, but yeah, I was just it, it was kind of like that's but that's what hooked me is because you have an expectation going in. It's an 80s slasher flick came out in 1982. You're anticipating. You're anticipating tits. You're anticipating sex scenes. You're anticipating gnarly kills. And while it leaned on the tropes, it didn't bury its head in them, which I liked. So I was I was very, very... I was uh, pleasantly surprised. When I, I was like, wow. I could, So it definitely made its way top 15. Made its way into the top 15 for me. I liked it. Well timed, well edited, well shot, a lot of good stuff. Like visually, uh, a good looking film, and just one of those lesser ones. And unfortunately, in the deluge of eighty slashers, thanks to Friday the Thirteenth, and thanks to uh, Halloween, and thanks to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Jesus in the Christ, slew of them that we got fifty other freaking right two horror films. In the slew of them that we've got, and not many of them we've talked about, where they kind of like got buried in the avalanche. This one holds up. I really, really dig this one and would recommend it for anybody who has not had the opportunity to see it. 
Well, this actually brings me to ask the audience, what is your favorite college horror movie? There's a lot of them out there. There are a lot of really good ones. There are a lot of really bad ones, too. But what is your favorite college horror film? Go ahead, shoot a comment below, or shoot us an email at weekendhorror at gmail.com. Because that Alex, is... who is here, needs reading material. He does. My, my favorite do. college horror story was Alex's college horror story <laughs> of 2009. <laughs> Actually, uh, oh, Angel Rivera brings up Night of the Creeps. Fucking A. Yeah. I got good news and bad news, girls. The good news is your dates are here. The bad news is, close up, they're dead. <laughs> like, yes! Fucking Tom Atkins! The man! <laughs> Aaron Reese brings up Black Christmas. Excellent. Sarcasm brings up student bodies. That movie's fucking hilarious. <laughs> when he starts drooling out of the phone, it's just it's so brilliant. That should have been a National Lampoon's film. You would expect it. Um, wrote in this is the type OU massacre. That's hilarious, dude. That's an inside joke from another live stream. Uh, I do appreciate that. Um, but so many good ones. I, I actually kind of I dig Sorority House Massacre. I, I like that one. Um, God, so many good college ones out there. And also some reason why uh, I uh, personally to kind of go more recent, I actually I think Scream Two holds up because Scream Two I think is actually better than the first Scream. Scream Two took place was college based, took place on the campus, and had a lot of the college horror tropes. Uh, sent them up meta style, but I really enjoyed Scream Two. Ooh, Scream and Happy Death Day! Happy Death Day! Absolutely, that's what I was actually fixing to say. I really, really like Happy Death Day. And Ivy Gentry, Freaky was high school. That was a high school horror because she was, uh, she was. I think she was she a cheerleader. Yeah, she was a cheerleader. Yeah, the yeah, she was a cheerleader. Okay. You're speaking of Freaky Friday, starring Lindsay Lohan and Jamie Lee Curtis, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I will say this: Freaky Good was fan. Freaky was fucking fantastic. Um, uh, fucking uh, Vince Vaughn. Was so brilliant in that movie, and the, the sequence when they switch because they switch bodies. The killer is now in the girl's in the in the final girl's body. The final girl is in the killer's body. The sequence when they're in the back of the car, and like it, it gets admitted, like the, the like the like the 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 popular boy in school has always had a crush on her, and but it's Vince Vaughn, and he's like. Oh, that's so sweet. Everything. <laughs> it was so brilliant. I was like, talking about their feelings. <laughs> It's fucking Vince Vaughn. Jesus Christ, uh, when's the next time you even see Vince Vaughn? Is it like Jurassic Park 2? No, that was that's way early on. Freaky came out just a couple years ago. Oh, that's a new Vince Vaughn movie? That, that's a yes. Vince Vaughn plays a serial killer who uses a this this like magical dagger, who comes across a magical dagger and uses it to kill a girl, but in the in trying to kill her, winds up switching bodies with her. So the serial killer is now in. I gotta go watch this. Yeah, the serial killer. <laughs> the serial killer is now in the in the the serial killer is now in now possessing the final girl's body, and the final girl is in the serial killer's body. Okay, and so, amazing. and the way that they play it to brilliant effect, because nobody expects the find the, the girl to be the killer, so she get can get the drop on everybody. And Vince Vaughn is a big motherfucker, and so, but and you know he, he looks kind of you know creepy, but he's the girl. And so there's a sequence when they're trying to like so it's like how how do we fix this how do we fix this and there's a moment when the the popular boy in school admits that he's had a crush on her for uh, you know for the longest time and she's like you have oh goodness they're having this moment but it's Vince Vaughn 
<laughs> playing is playing a high school girl, so they have a moment where they try to connect, and they're sitting in the backseat of the car together. <laughs> oh god, it was fucking amazing. Oh, that's great. Oh, oh fantastic. No, that's, what, that's what I gotta watch now. Awesome. All right, All right Alex, what do we got up? <laughs> uh, let's go to June twenty second, two thousand seven, with the Wizard of Gore. Roll that beautiful bean footage. You got a dose. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, The Wizard of Gore uh, is a splatter noir horror film directed by Jeremy Caston, starring Kit Pardue, Bayou Phillips, Crispin Glover, Joshua Miller, Brad Dorif, and Jeffrey Combs, and some of the Suicide Girls. Um, it's a remake of a 1970 Herschel Gordon Lewis film, and where you got. Uh, this magician, uh, Montag the Magnificent, uh, who is obviously performing these acts on stage and victims start popping up. Um, and this detective is trying to figure out what's going on. But it turns out that he has bitten off way more than he can fucking chew. And, uh, and shit gets real. Sorry, I didn't say it, Eugene. <laughs> and shit gets real. Shit, shit gets, gets real, real real quick. It's trippy. It's, <laughs> it's super cheesy noir, which is fucking great. And it is the complete opposite of the last film. It is all tits. Oh, yes, yes. Many, many, many tits in this one. And, okay, so so <laughs> Travis Brown, Ed Bigelow, male wizardo. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so there's a lot of love for Chris McGlover and a lot of love for Brad Dourif in this one. Not to mention it, it doesn't say it in there, but, uh, but Jeffrey Combs was also in this film. To very, very small effect. Um... So the problem was that I, okay, I'm a huge fan of Herschel Gordon Lewis's work. I love uh, his, it's the father of the, of splatter horror. And we're talking about uh, the guy behind, what was it? The guy behind, um, uh, what was it? What are some of his, one of some of his, uh, his favorite ones? Uh, Blood Feast, like the original Blood Feast. You can't get more than that. I mean, hardcore stuff. We've talked about like, uh, uh, what was it? 2000, uh, was it 2000 Maniacs? I love his stuff, and I love where he goes with it. And that's because Herschel Gordon Lewis never, ever, ever shied away from what I would call the the gore money shot or the splatter money shot. The problem with Wizard with this remake that that I came away with is that we never ever get there. Is that there? Is, there's a difference between what Gordon Lewis was doing and what what this film tries to do. Gordon Lewis went full, full, everything that led up, all of the violence that leads up, leads up to the moment. That was like the big splatter moment. We're talking the camera gets closer and closer and it never shies away. Unfortunately, in this one, it does shy away. So we never get to that point. So it kind of misses the mark on that. And it tries to fill that. Because, you know, if you if you leave that out, then you got to fill the space with something else. So it fills it up with plenty of TNA, brings in the Suicide Girls models. At the time, 2007, the Suicide Girls were were pretty hot. That was a big, that was like, they were, they were notorious because, uh, they were edgy and, you know, they were girls that were tattooed and they had piercings and, you know, you know, atypical, uh, sex objects, atypical pinups. And so they bring these, you know, it, it, uh, it gives a kind of a visual appeal to it. And then of course adds in the whole kind of like detective noir kind of style. I would say that this one is takes from Herschel Gordon Lewis but if, if this were Three Men and a Baby and Wizard of Gore, the remake, was the baby, then the fathers would be Herschel Gordon Lewis, Clive Barker, and D. Snyder's, uh, D. Snyder's Strangeland. 
So, because it takes elements from all three and try to puts them and kind of puts them in this movie. Because you know, D. Snyder Strange Land, you've got the piercings, you've got the tattoos, you've got the kind of underground, uh, the the underground kind of, um, I would say, almost netherworld style uh, uh, universe that these people that these people play in. Then you've got the Clive Barker style titillating sexual scenes and the neo noir detective story, very similar to Lord of Illusions. And then, of course, Herschel Gordon uh, Lewis's original film, The Wizard of Gore. And I think, unfortunately, this is a remake of that. Don't take from it and say you say it's a remake. Actually, remake the movie. And unfortunately, when you're remaking a splatter horror, like a legit, you do what Robert Englund, you do what what 2001 Maniacs did when when they remade that and brought back with Robert Englund, they went whole hog in that one. And that is fully what you would expect from a sequel to the original uh, 2000 Maniacs. They missed the mark in this one. If you're going to do splatter horror, don't shy away from the splatter. Get in there. Get the camera in there. It's what the camera wants. Don't obscure it. Don't hide it behind trickery. You know? Really go for the gusto. Unfortunately, it just it just doesn't, which is a shame. And you know, with Chris McGlover and Brad Dourif and Jeffrey Combs, but you know, all this legend, all this stuff they try to pump in here to to give the film its valuation, when the one thing it is is a remake of a Herschel Gordon Lewis film, it just it just falls short of the mark. I was disappointed. A swing and a miss. The one thing, the one thing that kind of got to me about this film is, at moments, it felt really cheap. Mm-hmm. And it, especially when you have him doing his show, and it's like, and it's, it's, it's kind of weird because there's some production value in there in stage setups, but there's something that's just kind of it didn't quite sell me in the whole. Like it should have been more of like a auditorium theater kind of performance instead of it. It felt like a high school kind of thing it felt like a or kind of a, a warehouse but not not like a real derelict warehouse that could have i could have worked for a performance but it just felt like kind of like something it felt like a kind of a newer warehouse that they just kind of tried to dress up on it and it's just it just it didn't quite some some of the areas sell it for me mm-hmm. um it aspects of it and just for some reason when you look at a lot of the mid 2000s two films maybe from like about 2004 to about 2009 2010 and obviously there's some great ones in there i'm just excluding those there's a there's like a style that just didn't translate well like you you can watch some of the, you can watch some of the horror films in the 90s and they still look good today it's like boom that's solid that looks good i can watch them over same thing the 80s 70s um, and then obviously you got some films today that are great, but there's just this logo that it's like if it didn't hit, it was just a miss. Like there's no okay looking films. They're all you know like stellar and they're awesome, or it's kind of a man. That's kind of rough. It looks cheap, and then to me, this kind of falls into that cheap category on it. It does get cheap, and I think they tried to play into the cheapness as like that cheesy showmanship type situation but it it comes off too cheap you know i've been thinking about it montag the the magician he reminds me of like a delirious like matt smith um just in a lot of his movements and the way that he presents himself but it is i could agree with you on that it it being cheap um it feels 
it feels too cheap. It's like it would have it would have worked if they hit the mark. What they were trying to do was like look cheap, but they actually came off as cheap, and that that kind of hurt it. I would agree. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That it's kind of a they could they could have had it in a way where it like they went for cheapness on purpose, and right, there are a lot of right. people that do that, and they, you can do that very well on it. But this was like it felt more like budget constraints, or maybe it was just maybe the art department didn't go all the way through. And the thing is, you're right. You got something called a film called The Wizard of Gore. Well, right. when you watch a film called The Wizard of Gore, what are you going to watch? Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm here to watch The Notebook. That's what I'm looking for. When I'm... <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It, it kind of struck me. It struck me as, as almost like uh, the whole film had the vibe of like a, a fun house, like a horror-themed fun house. I just, you know, with the, with the, especially with the weird twisty stuff they did to kind of, because the, the narrator is unreliable. Like the, the protagonist of the movie is completely and totally unreliable. You find it at one point that he's, that he's totally drugged. All of the, the weird kind of like stuff they did to, to kind of convey that his, his grip on reality has slipped and what he thinks is real isn't actually real and it's all made up in his head. He's been hallucinating the whole time. So the way they try to convey that and the cheapness of the primary set and there's, it seemed like it, it seemed very very much like it was like a funhouse mirror version of the original. Whereas if you watch the original, it's extremely it's actually really well lit and everything is is face front. You you get you you get every bit of it in uh, in the original film. This one just tried to make I think tried to make it a little too edgy, a little too noir, and you know something is lost in the interim. And that's the difficulty of trying to remake Herschel Gordon Lewis stuff unless you're willing to just go go full bore and just like that you know, Lewis had his own style and his style was perfect for depicting the level of carnage and gore that he wanted to depict on screen. And when you try, when you shy away from that, when you try to get away from that and you lose something. And I think probably what it was having, trying to make up for it, trying to fill in that void was like with such big names, having Crispin Glover in there, having Brad Dourif in there, having uh, Jeffrey Combs in there, having Kip Pardue in there, Bijou Phillips in there. A bunch of recognizable names, especially in the horror genre, and then, you know, where's the, where's the rest of the money going? I would have loved <laughs> unnamed. I would have loved uh, you could have had to, you. This thing could have rested on Crispin Glover alone and used the rest of the money to like hire in some no name to bring in some no names, no name talent, and then use the rest of the money to really you know do the set to really create a, a magnificent set. So like some American Horror Story style stuff, at least a big top kind of sensation where it's like this traveling act to give it a little bit more panache. It just doesn't have that because they spent so much, I think trying and not to mention we didn't need the suicide girls. Now there are plenty of actresses out there that will, you know, that will do what you need to do on screen, you know, and I, I get trying to get, you know, it, it's, it's trying to get that fame by association. Oh, look, man, we got the suicide girls in here. Ooh, not necessary. I get what you're trying to do, but you didn't need to spend the extra money for that to right. use their name and use their pinups. Just bring some girls in, you know? It's all they did was was they were fodder, you know? Chris McGlover could have carried the whole film himself. Classically over the top. I love that. It just his whole, where are you going, bitch? I fucking love <laughs> You're going to die tonight. I fucking just love that. Just Because someone, obviously, someone's, oh, I'm all revolted. And I get up and I go to leave. Where are you going, bitch? <laughs> so I love the way that Chris McGlover is so beyond over the top. It works really, really well. But, uh, yeah. And and I actually didn't, I, I didn't click that the the geek 
was Jeffrey Combs. It, that, because it was so made up. Until he talks, I had no idea. I was like, so who's the... I thought it was just some dude. I, 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 he looked kind of like Tom Waits to me. And then uh, with, the ha- with the hair and the beard and everything, I was like, oh shit, that's fucking Jeffrey Combs. Oh fuck. <laughs> well, maybe because he, he didn't want to really be credited in the film. <laughs> just hide me. Just hide me. <laughs> just don't, don't associate my name with that, please. Well, see, it seems like they focus so much on the marketing aspect of it because it's like, why why do you cast a named person? It's because you can market around that person's name because people refer to, oh, have you seen the trailer for the new movie or the new Leonardo DiCaprio movie? That's how people refer to films. So then you cast somebody so you can use your name for marketing. And it seemed like they focused so much on the marketing. Let's get as many named talents as possible. And, I mean, Suicide Girls, this is back when they came out. And Suicide Girls was big at the time. Let's get Suicide Girls. Let's do this. And controversial. They were controversial as well. Controversial. um, Because you're talking about alt models. And then it was like, okay, we get all this marketing. Uh, you know, we got to make a movie too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, about that. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> so, yeah, well, I, I get it. I get wanting to do the remake, and, and you know, touching on Herschel Gordon Lewis's work is a good way to ensure that it's never forgotten and that it, to kind of pay homage uh, to the, the, the father of splatter, uh, splatter horror. And I like that. Unfortunately, I think this is either, this is either too many cooks in the kitchen or. And not not really well planned out what they were wanting to convey. Like this, like maybe they wanted to do it, and you know, just, there was never a clear vision as to what should be the focus. And the focus should have been Montag the Magnificent and all the stuff going on stage, with the investigative story being tertiary to all of that. the 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 point of a splatter horror film is the splatter horror. Spend time with it, revel in it. That's what Lewis did. That's what they should have done here. Unfortunately. It's, it's all dress up, you know, which is why I got the feel. It's like, oh, it's just kind of like, you know, going through a haunted house. You know, it's like, oh, or going through a fun house. It's like, yeah, I, I, I can see what they're going for, but I'm a little too old for this, unfortunately. Yeah. And like you said, it was a remake and it, it kind of missed. Yeah. It missed all of the good points that made it a good movie in, in the first place because it was trying too hard to be its own thing. If you're going to do a remake, remake it. Don't don't try to change up too much stuff. Don't try to add all that flair in there to try to get you know numbers in the door, especially on something that was already good. You really don't got to try too hard, and I think this one tried way too hard. I tell you what, it did is it made me want to watch. Uh, it made me want to watch the original. It made me want to watch Strange Land again, which I'll, I'll always <laughs> take an opportunity to watch. Decide of Strange Land. Strange Land. That movie is fucking brilliant, and it made me want to watch Lord of Illusions again. It, it, it just it, I, mean, I had a hankering for some Harry Demore and you know some D Snyder for some Captain Howdy shit. You know, I, I was, yeah, I wanted that. I was like, you know, it, it harkens back to things that, that are better than it, which is, it was just a shame. So, yeah. But Hey, let's ask the audience. If you saw the original, if you saw the new one, which one did you like better? The old one or the remake? Let us know below in the comments or at weekendhorrorgmail.com. Oh, yes. So we went, we went with one film at the beginning. It was a new film. And then we went two polar opposite films. JL. <laughs> now we're going to go way back in the way back Let's machine. Let's fucking weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
All right. Yeah. Oh, so Aaron Reese brings up Harry is in the Crim- the Crimson Gospels, which is a good book. Yeah, it had a it had a very Books of Blood feel to it. Uh, the Wizard of Gore had a very Books of Blood feel to it with the yeah. whole investigative and all the neo noir aspects. That's that's what it kept. I kept my mind kept drifting to that. Like, wow, they were going for this this kind of Barker esque kind of inspiration, and they they did, but they didn't go for it, which is a shame. You know, it go, it goes up to the edge, but never goes over, which is where we want it to go. Um, that's that have the balls to do what you set out to do. Unfortunately, this one just kind of doesn't. You know, which is what is just a shame. Um, uh, so yeah, we're gonna go way back, way back, way back in the way back machine. Uh, so released June twenty fifth, nineteen fifty three, and I love the fact that we, when we talk about fifties horror, um, because it's it's so different than the, than what we have today. But we're gonna talk about the movie Robot Monster. The MST3K legend. Uh, let's check out this trailer. <laughs> baffling, baffling is right. Well. <laughs> so, Robot Monster, or also known as Monster from Mars, uh, directed by Phil Tucker, written by Wyatt Ordung, and starring George Nader, Claudia Barrett, and George Barrows. Uh, the film essentially follows a, uh, how to describe this. It tells the story of the alien robot Roman, right? Roman's <laughs> mission to Earth to destroy humanity. Uh, Roman manages to kill all but eight survivors who have become immune to his death ray. Roman runs afoul of the Great Guidance, which is, who is his leader, the Great Guidance, when he becomes attracted to the human Alice. She's the eldest daughter of a surviving scientist, and he refuses to harm her. Then the Great Guidance must now come to Earth and finish what the moon robot started. Um, wow. So, goddamn invading... <laughs> Aaron Reese, goddamn invading scuba apes. <laughs> the gorilla <laughs> in a diving helmet. So, okay. This movie has been lauded, has been sent up on MST3K. It was sent up by Elvira. I get people making fun of this thing. I really, really do. The problem is that I was sitting here watching. It's on YouTube. It's on there for free. Uh, and it feels to me, it felt very much to me like this movie was punching. Going after this movie is punching down. It's not like, you know, movies like Mono's Hands of Fate. Okay, or Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, or uh, or Beast from Yucca Flats. Okay, it's th- this one, I-, I think, honestly, was a film that was that they needed to make, they needed to make a movie, and they cobbled together what they could out of the Universal Studios back lot. What's not being used? Let's throw it together. Let's get this ape suit. Let's put a diving helmet on it. Let's soap up the the the, vi- the soap up the uh, the uh, the glass so that you can't really see the person's face. Let's put some antennas on it. You know, and that that's our monster. Um and you know, yeah, and then Sarcasm brings up it's all a dream. I freaking hate that ending. Yeah, it's it's yeah. Everything about the movie is cheap. Everything about the movie is not well done. It's uh <laughs> not well written, not partic- not particularly well acted. I didn't I wasn't a fan of the whole like the back and forth of you know, oh, let's do it. No, no, no. It felt very James Bondish. You know, kept telling no, until eventually she acquiesces to the guy's advances, and they when they wind up uh, doing it. But um, this is an example of of you need to make a movie, so you grab whatever you can to fucking make a movie. Just just grab what you can, do whatever you can to make it as fast and make it as cheap as possible. And I think that's where it's problematic. 
This aired in the 50s. This is post. This is uh, less than 20 years after um, after uh, uh, Orson Welles' War of the Worlds. Robot, robots and aliens are on everybody's minds, and they were a big topic at the time. And so, why not make a movie about an invader and shoot it out there in Southern California, where, you know, it's, you know, we would, good open spaces, you know, out, out there, I believe it was Gila Flats, and then uh, just go out there with a camera and fucking shoot it and shit. Um, and do most of the stuff in, you know, do most of the sound in ADR, you know, just, you know, record it later and just put it in uh, on top of it. Yeah, there's a lot of problems with this movie, but yes, it's uh, yes, it's bad. Yes, sarcasm. You're right. It's bad, JL. It's all bad. You could say it. It's okay to call it what it is. It is bad. Yes, this is a bad movie. This is a terrible movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> but as like Antonio Regime says, this might have been better if Ed Wood had made it. It didn't. That's, that's the thing about Ed Wood. Ed Wood's films know they're bad, and they lean into they they steer into the curve. This film doesn't know that. This is ostensibly people really trying to make a movie. And holy fuck. Holy fuck. You know, when the when the, the Calcitron rays. It's like, who is writing your dialogue? I swear. But hey, it was the 50s. It was a different time. <laughs> you know? Um, but I could see what they were trying to do. It just, damn. Just, you know, not, not great. <laughs> <laughs> well, like with this movie is this movie felt like it's a couple of people who probably aren't filmmakers and have worked on probably other projects and got together and want to do their own thing. Like that's because I'm looking at because it only had a budget of sixteen thousand dollars, which even in even in nineteen six. It's not a lot of money. <laughs> not a lot of money at all for a budget for a film. That's true. And, and it um, box office a million. Yeah, it box office a million. That's, that's a, amazing. But you, you got a budget of 16000 which I don't, I don't know the difference of inflation between now and then. But obviously, it's still going to be a very, very, very small budget. So it's just right. kind of like... You kind of like you had like a couple of guys who are maybe have been a couple of production assistants and maybe it's like some grips and they're like, you know, what? we're going to do our own thing. So they go into the Warner Brothers lot or um, any kind of studio lot and we're just going to steal stuff out of the dumpster. And then we're going to go to the middle of nowhere because middle of nowhere is free. And we're going to go and we're going to shoot our own kind of our own kind of film. And th this is kind of this is kind of what you get on it is this movie is definitely better than films like Mano's Hands of Fate. This first of all, <laughs> this has model work and it has like it has yeah. models and miniatures and some pyrotechnics and stuff like that where Mano's Hands of Fate they could afford two lights total in the entire production. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man, the 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 the, the jet stuff, the you know, it's like damn what kind of like, like these gotta, these planes with like no flight stabilization whatever it's just oh, I'm all over the place man it's just like it's just, that was a bottle rocket on a string <laughs> that, that right it. yeah just, and then of course um and uh, just uh, I I don't I I don't I okay it's okay to just be like listen it was terrible there was a monkey suit uh <laughs> And that's all well, that's the that. thing about about George Barrows is they hired George Barrows was was well uh, did a lot of monkey did played a lot of gorillas in film in the 1950s. 
That is, that's pretty much what he was known for. And oftentimes he was uncredited. But he did that kind of work, like, all the time. So the guy they hired is the guy who they, they typically... I mean, the, the guy literally comes with a monkey suit. So, yeah, that's the suit that he was wearing. They decided, I guess, change it up a little bit. And, make, and this was wild is that the... The poster has like you know the helmet with the skull in it and everything to to give that kind of appeal. But you never see that in the movie. There there is no skull in that thing. You just you can kind of see there's a person in there a little bit, except for the great guidance whose you know face is completely blacked out. It, uh, actually, there's a moment when it turns and the light hits it, and you could tell that there was something stuck on the glass so that it would block so that it would black it out and you wouldn't be able to see it and then all the pantomiming with the lines you know because <laughs> you they they can at that time there was no way to record them speaking and get them clearly wearing those outfits so you got to yeah and then you get then you have to like put the you have to drop then they record the lines and drop the ADR in after the fact um I don't know. Brody in the last name said, well, it's no track of the moon beast. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> this one, this one's pretty gnarly. This was, this was set up as one of the worst films ever, ever, like ever made. Um, the writer director, uh, Tucker, who was only, he was only 25 years old when he made this, which makes sense. He's only 25 years old when he, when he did this and uh, estimated budget of $16,000 and except for a few scenes at a house in Los Angeles in a building site near Dodger Stadium, most of the footage was filmed. It was Bronson Canyon. My bad. It was Bronson Canyon and where a lot of things are filmed. That's a legendary spot uh, for uh, for movies and for television. And uh, so one thing about this is the low budget didn't allow for a Robert. Originally, it was supposed to be a robot costume. That was originally what the script called for. But the budget didn't allow for that to happen. So he hired so Tucker, who was friends with Barrows. Um, and made his own, so he, the guy made his own gorilla suit. So, cause that's what he played. So he might as well have one with him because it makes him easier to hire. Cause if I hire the guy that owns the shit, he'll bring it himself. And then I don't have to worry about that. I can save it in the budget. So he, so, uh, Barrows played Roman and then he added a space and then Tucker added a space helmet, uh, similar to the ones used in, uh, radar men from the moon. So to kind of give it that appeal and, you know, this plot was kind of stolen from Invader, Invaders from Mars, which was released a month earlier. Um, uh, and I think uh, it, it's just, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's <laughs> what can we, what can we possibly say? And a very early effort um, is essentially, essentially what this was. Uh, Phil Tucker, who, uh, and yes, often considered an example, and it's put it here that he's, he's put up there with like Ed Wood. Is where his films are. You know, Dance Hall Racket, The Cape Canaveral Monsters, The Nude Bomb, uh, Death Riders, Out of Control, Broadway Jungle, stuff like that. So uh, it's it kind of falls into that category. The problem is that it's not aware. It, it, he's not aware of it. Ed Wood always knew how bad his, bad the movies were. He leaned into them, and that's what makes them enjoyable. That's what makes us. Uh, that's what allows us to. That's why I can watch an Ed Wood film. I can watch Plan Nine and be like, "This is fucking hilarious." Because Ed Wood knew it was hilarious. Well, it, it was, I think with Ed Wood, is Ed Wood didn't care. Right, Ed, right, Ed, yeah. Ed Wood cared more about just making a movie than it was about it being good. He, like, he's just, I want to be, be a director, and this is my resources, <laughs> this is what I got, and I'm just going to do it. And I don't care what anybody says, and I'm just going to do it. You can kind of get behind it. You can kind of enjoy it. That's why you get like what the room with Tom Wazoo and Mano's Hands of Fate because they were just 
go. Man of Hands of Fate was bad. Like the, the guy, the director of Bet, an Academy Award winning writer, he could make a film. And then, because the director's a used car salesman. And so he went, took out, what is it, like $18,000 and made Mano's Hands of Fate. No one had any film experience, nothing at all. And was just, this. I just want to do it. That's why we can laugh at that. The room, right. because Tom Wazoo was like, I want to make a movie, I don't care. <clears throat> da, da, da. I just want to do it my way. And in this film, they were trying to be good. It was like, it was like a, I want to have a really good, because I think this was his first film. I want to make a really good effort. It's just in the fifties, making a film was so much harder than it is today. Right. That's why we don't get a lot of these films because 16,000, I mean, it's, it's indie and indie in the fifties is almost virtually unheard of because it was so expensive just to get a camera and film let alone actors and suits and all this other kind of stuff. He probably had a hookup somewhere that can give him a camera. They probably acted mostly for free, and then he just paid for film. Yeah. Probably how the film actually got made. And so you get one of the examples of the first indie film. So Tony Regime brings up an interesting an interesting thought. Says, uh, did Ed Wood really know how bad his films were, or was he suffering from Dunning-Kruger? From what I understand, and from interviews with the man, the interviews with the people that worked with him, is that they were all very much aware of how bad this was going to be. The people that he worked with were experienced filmmakers. They, experienced filmmakers, experienced actors. These people were professionals. And they recognized that they didn't have a lot to work with, and that this wasn't that these films were not going to look very good. So what better way to do that than to lean into it and just go for the gusto. Just make it as goofy as you can. Just go for it, you know? And he wasn't trying to win an Academy Award. He wasn't trying to go for you go for the big hits. He was just trying to make movies. And the only movies that you can make are going to be bad because if you're limited access and you're limited budget and you know, you're very small stable of actors, then just go for it. You know, do what you can do, make what you know. And so Ed, from what I understand, Ed Wood was very aware of this. Everyone was. And that's why they played it up so much because they knew that it would play to a specific audience. People would enjoy it. And it, you know, and given that it was kind of, some of it was kind of self-referential and that they knew how bad it was and it was kind of poking fun at itself. They knew that it would have some longevity. It wouldn't just be like, oh, this thing takes itself so seriously. And then it would just be dispensed. You know, Ed Wood was uh, was was more of a brilliant marketer than he was a director, and he knew what he knew what played, and I think that that shines in that why he has the legacy he has, and why unfortunately someone like Tucker does not, unless we goes back and specifically look at him. So I think he, I, I'm pretty sure he knew what was going on. And Ad the and the George says, and good to see you, and the George, thanks for hanging out. Says, and with it, and with as much as you guys harp on getting it in the can, the impressiveness of getting the can, just call it what it is. It's bad. Getting it in the can will always be the benchmark. And if you get it there, that's what that that's the big goal. That's the success. We know how hard it is to make a movie, to to to, to, to make like like try to put forth that, that kind of effort. We know how hard it is to make a movie. We know what the logistics are that go in behind it. In the 50s, it was much more difficult because it was the time when the Hayes Code was involved and you had studios that you had to deal with. The, the politics and the mentality are far different than they than they were back then. They're much they were much harder back then, so than they are today. So I would say um, we can see it for what it's trying to be, 
And yeah, the movie's not great, not bad. I mean, the movie's bad. The movie's terrible. <laughs> um, but uh, but we can see we can you know we can see, there's a silver lining. There's a silver lining to this cloud. And sarcasm would like to say, Ed Wood was a guerrilla filmmaker, not a gorilla filmmaker. <laughs> this is very true. This is very true. Oh, but uh, given given us chatting about this one, there's not a lot to say about Robot Monster. It was one of, of a slate or a, a spate of, you know, invaders from Mars or like, you know, aliens come to destroy us. You know, there the were other films that were done a lot better. Obviously, I think I agree with Eugene. This was kind of an independent effort. This was a young director and writer who was putting together a movie. And this is without major studio support. This is what he was able to generate, which just goes to show. This is an indie film. Now, compare it to the other stuff that the studios were producing at the time, like War of the Worlds or Invaders from, uh, what was it? Uh, some of the other, um, I had one on the tip of my tongue. The studio, the, go ahead. I mean, you have you have big movies that are coming out. You have movies that are in color right. at that time. Um, <laughs> and you look at it as like, yeah, look what the studios were able to do. What were the indie guys doing? This goes to show that the indie that the indie mentality was still around. People wanted to make movies, and it was back then. It was more about politics and networking, about who you know and who you who you can get resources from. The fact that he was able to scrounge together sixteen grand camera sound and all the stuff to put together is pretty goddamn impressive for the 50s when you don't have major studio backing so he was able to put it together and do it that's pretty impressive the fact that he you know nowadays yes ivy gentry's right now if you're determined enough you can make a movie with your damn phone this is the truth and people so, have and they've gotten into big festivals too yes they have in fact during during the during covid one of the top grossing films in one of those months was a horror film shot solely with iphones so it, it, it can happen. Back then, the 50s were a different time. So we have to look at it from that perspective. And I'll give it its credit there. I really, really would. Um, I do do like, I do like Roden, no, a Roden, no last name. Just go for it. That's the kind of attitude that he caused you to make a movie about a nail gun killer. Exactly. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, exactly. That's the point. All right, but uh, given all this, given all of this, and you know, and I, I kind of wanted to touch a little bit. There's a lot of cultural subtext that went into the film that's important to remember. Given it was 1953, it was at the tail end of the uh, the tail end the tail end of the Korean conflict. The fact that McCarthyism was in you know you know was in full swing in the United States of America at the time. You can see a lot of that kind of fill, kind of like filling in there. there. It touches on things that are going culturally at the time. And when you recognize those points, it made the film a little bit more poignant for me. Because I recognize what was happening. What are they trying to convey? The fact that the bad guy's name is Roman from the Roman Empire. You can see what the writer was trying to convey with this. Civil, you know, powerful civilizations coming across other civilizations and wiping them out for the sheer sake that they may one day pose a threat to you. This right here, the one thing that I dug out of this whole thing, out of the whole mess, was that was that um, Robot Monster was telling a story, was telling a reflection of human history. And that we so often, so often our civilization, our little societies, will target other ones that could potentially be a threat. About preemptive strikes and the failures of those preemptive strikes. And how this reflects upon us as a species... And how other species would view this of us. 
And I liked what he was trying to do there. He didn't pull it off, but I can see where his target was. I just wish he had hit it, you know? But if you notice what's going on there and the mentality and the cultural impact that was, that was, you know, the cultural impact, I would say the impact of what was going on in culture on the film, I think it adds a little bit more flavor to it. That's just my, that's just my opinion on that. Oh, you've spun it in a way that, all right, fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but given this, given that you know, Robot Monster is one of the worst. It's it, it's pretty much agreed upon. It's one of the worst films ever made. I don't think it's the worst film ever made. Not the worst. You know, yeah, let's put it this way. Let's put it this way. It's on YouTube, and we're on YouTube. So, can't be, exactly, can't be all bad. Can't be all That's bad. True. I want to ask the audience in y'all's opinion. What is the worst horror film ever made? Oh, what the hell is this? Rodan Noah Sam says, JL sounds like a New York art critic not being told he's critiquing a child's drawing. <laughs> <laughs> this is fucking terrible. Hey, uh, a three-year-old drew this. But, you know, I see what they were trying to do here. And I think they, they, really, they really... See? Sir Casim says, I saw the red scare aspect as well, but it was still very, very bad. <laughs> So I want to know. I would. We want to know what was. What do you think? What, in your opinion, was the worst horror film ever made? And I'm talking the history, history of horror. What is? What is, in your opinion, the worst horror film ever made? Let us know in the live chat or in the comments below, or of course at weekendhorrorgml.com. And I see two up there. One Tony Regime says, "Track of the Moon Beast." <laughs> <laughs> and God, so much hate for that film. And Sir Chasm says Lamageddon. Fuck that. Lamageddon was awesome. No, Lam- yeah, Lamageddon was fun. We gotta throw in the touch of Satan. Which <laughs> this fantastic moment in the touch of Satan. It's like a 70s film. And they're like on some kind of like ranch or something. And this gate opens up and the gate hits the camera. The gate opens up, and the camera goes. Pfft. Like this. <laughs> That's in the final cut. <laughs> nice. You don't got Travis Brown says every Friday the 13th film. You're going to get some hate for that one, my friend. You are going to get some yep. hate for that one. Especially like Friday the 13th Part 6 or Part 7. The two best of the entire franchise. Um, Diagnosed Horror says, worst horror movie ever made? Uh, Goldfield Ghost or something like that. Maybe. Honestly, I'm going to throw it down. Uh, it's definitely up there in the top three. Troll, uh, Troll 2. Troll they're two. eating her. Oh my god, oh my they're god. gonna eat me. Oh my god. Oh my god. It's <laughs> so terrible. Oh, absolutely. Oh, Ivy Gentry, Monos. Monos hands of fate. <laughs> I wish those big hands would just push him over. <laughs> I fucking love. Oh, I fucking love the MST3K of that one. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> I I wish those big hands would just push him over. <laughs> <laughs> so good. That man needs groping lessons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Sally Skeleton you know, brings up hobgoblins. Hobgoblins and ghoulies. Can I throw, yeah. can I throw a, a 2022 movie that I just saw in here? Because it may have, it might be a contender, is uh, huh. Requiem. It was, it was a shark movie. Oh, shit. Um, uh, the one with Alicia Silverstone and the sharks. Yeah, yeah. So it's fucking terrible. <laughs> And the whole thing's fucking green screened. And it's like, you can't, it's so green screened. It's not even funny. You can tell they're sitting in a small tank on a rock 
and like you, the whole thing, it's it's fucking terrible. It's, it's garbage. Was it like it was um it was a wreck? What, what the hell was the name of that one? Um, Alicia, it was Alicia Silverstone, right? Alicia Silverstone yeah, shark Requiem. movie. Uh, the Requin. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the Requin is what it's called. So, um, yeah. and yeah, I heard it was. I heard it was bad. Um, the Shallows was much, much better. The Shallows was a lot of Blake Lively. Yeah, the, the Blake great. Lively shark yeah, was amazing. Yeah, the Shallows is good. And she yeah, was, I heard the Requin actually, was really bad. She was actually there. Like this whole thing is so fucking terribly green screened. It's 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 so bad. <laughs> like it's hard to it's hard to look at. All right. Oh yeah, and the George says Leprechaun in space. <laughs> Uh, wrote it in all the same says every single asylum film. <laughs> Aaron Ray says, Poor sharks, people used to be afraid they'd eat you. Now people are just afraid Tara Reed will show up. <laughs> oh ouch. Damn. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> all right. So I think it, it is about that time. It is trivia time. Trivia time. <laughs> we we gotta come up with something to do for that. There's <laughs> <laughs> some music to play or something. I don't know. I know something. Something to yeah, announce that. But yeah, it's trivia time. And this week we are going to give away a week in horror official pint glass, which I think yeah. is one of the best things we have on the store because the pint glass features the artwork from the limited edition shirt number one, created by Joshua Olson. So, yep, uh, we're going to give away one of those bad boys for this trivia question. The person who gets this answer for this trivia question first in the live chat. Do we have the live chat up? Uh, I do. Yep. Okay, awesome. So, you can watch it. Uh, Eugene, go ahead and give it to him. Get, get those Google fingers ready. Go ahead, Eugene. All right. The trivia question is, legendary actor Hal Holbrook starred as a college employee in what other classic horror film? Legendary actor Hal Holbrook starred as a college employee in what other classic horror film? Paul Rudd. <laughs> oh, Halloween 6 was bad. Halloween, yeah, that was, was terrible. Was the, curse, the, the curse of Michael Myers? Yeah. Yeah, it's great. The curse of yeah. Michael Myers. Oh, look at that. Already. There it is. Nice, nice. I was brought in. We have Travis Brown with the correct answer. Creep show. Great job, Travis. Great job. Excellent work. Congratulations, Travis Brown. Uh, one of our big uh, trivia winners. Uh, we're going to send you a Weekend Horror official pint glass. Awesome. Glad you won that. What the hell is this? Jail. Uh, Plottle says the night Jail lost his virginity. <laughs> No, that's not a Fuck. horror movie. That's a comedy drama. It actually, it actually, it was a comedy, and it was an absolute. Actually, it was it was a black comedy because, and uh, you know, I'm gonna get a little, I'm gonna get a little personal on this one. Um, it was with my best friend's girlfriend, and we best both got poisoned. We both got poison ivy. We both got, but 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 we both got poison ivy because of it. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about getting I, caught red-handed. I was it, right. It was it was it was bad. It was really bad. It, it you know stupid high stupid high school shenanigans. You know, but uh, but yeah, you know that was. It, 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 I would say it was a black comedy. It was a black comedy. <laughs> a lot of laughing, a lot of crying, a lot of itching right there. Yeah, it was. It was just not. It was not great. It was not great at all. So. 
Man. God. On that fucking note. <laughs> you, you, you can't tell me yours is any more entertaining than that. I couldn't. <laughs> exactly. I win. <laughs> Didn't get I win. I win. I had the I had the worst first experience. Yay. <laughs> Does anybody Jesus. really have a good first experience? Anybody says yes is li- Anybody that says yes is lying. <laughs> <laughs> That's a general life CTA right there. <laughs> I don't know what I nobody knows what they're doing. No one does. It wasn't like the video. The pamphlet told me nothing. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> right for you. You're a tiny penis. <laughs> And that will bring another episode of Week in Horror to a close. Thank, Thank you all so much for listening. <laughs> and we truly hope you enjoyed the show. Join us next week when we look back at the classic eco-horror begin- beginning of the end. The last of Universal's Sheila, the ape woman horror films, The Jungle mm-hmm. Captive. The Italian vampire classic, The Monster of the Opera. And the 50s meta-horror, How to Make a Monster. We'd like to spend a... Se- a- Spend a sexual... <laughs> Bleakin Glock Howry. We'd like to send a special shout out to all of our Are you amazing... having a stroke? <laughs> and... Take two. We'd like to send a special shout out to all of our amazing patrons who continue to help us make We Can Horror the incredible success it has become. Thank you all so much. And be sure to stop by Joshua Olson's store, www.badsamurai.store. He does all of our amazing artwork for the show, and his designs are incredible. For more horror fun, be sure to follow us on all of the socials, where you will get the Daily Squatter right to your feed, and check us out at Digital Darkness, our new YouTube gaming channel, hosted by AlienX Gaming. Remember, YouTube can help combat the eagle algorithm. The eagle algorithm. Is it hot outside or something? Are you guys okay? Am I okay? oh anyways the algorithm fucks us up so drop by comment like subscribe and smash that bell as if we're an uve bowl we're gonna stop begging on uve bowl (laughs) no we're gonna beg on uve bowl for the the rest of history (laughs) oh man i just just punch the shit out of the bell like it was uve bowl and he's waving waving a new game annotation script Oh, anyways, just let's go lastly. If you love what we do here and you would like and are able to support our production, you can through our Patreon. Because we all go a little mad sometimes. You can show your weekend horror love by joining one of our subscriber tiers. Join your fellow fanatics, slashers, possessed, and mastermind patrons for all kinds of special behind-the-scenes access to the Weekend Horror Podcast. But if patron is not your favorite stocking method, you can always support us directly through PayPal. Links to everything, including our Discord community, where you can find trailers, trivia games, horror watch parties, share your own content, and even interact directly with the crew are down in the description. As always, sharing this show with the fans in your local horror community is the absolute best way to help us further our goals of global horror domination. Thank you all for being the greatest audience a podcast could have, and I know we say that every week, but seriously, thank you guys so much. I'm Alex. I'm JL. And I'm Eugene, and I just wanted to say real, real, real quick, we have Travis Brown that's actually gifting his gift to Sally Skellington, which is an amazing, amazing.
Perfect. So definitely, Sally, send over your shipping information, and we'll get your pint out to you. And thank you, Travis, awesome. for being so generous. Very cool, Thanks Travis. For it. It's awesome. Well, we'll he's see won like week. all. He's won like all the fucking prizes. So I know. Yeah, dude, he gets it every fucking. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the UPS guy is like, "What the fuck is this guy doing?" <laughs> <laughs> all right, we'll see y'all next week and as always stay scared